0: Psalm 16, verses 7 through 11. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul into Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Go ahead and uh, turn to the book of Jude. It's only one chapter. We'll be reading the first four verses. You'll find it printed in your bulletins as well. It says, Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. And I'll go ahead and begin reading. Let us read God's holy and inspired word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. There's an anchor on one of the uh, cable news networks who is a former Navy SEAL. And he talks a lot about staying in shape, training to fight. And even now, with his military career over, he still does it. He still talks about it. And on one occasion, he said he continued to train because there were always people in this world who would want to harm him and his family. And he understood that we live in a violent world. He expected to have confrontation. And he wanted to be prepared. In fact, every society has to contend with those who want to harm others. No city is exempt from this type of threat. And in some places, as you know, people are more likely to be confronted by evil people than others. There's certainly a lot of lawlessness going on in many of our major cities in America. The threat level is very high who live in those places. But in our text this morning... Jude is warning the church that a threat exists. But this threat isn't coming from outside the church. It's coming from within the church. And Jude exhorted the church that it was time to fight. And this fight, it wasn't physical. It was spiritual. And so what was happening is the members within the church were living lawless lives. Uh, they weren't submitting to the teaching of the apostles, which ostensibly was a denial of of God the Father and Jesus Christ, who they claimed to be their Lord. In this situation, it was threatening the church, and a time for sitting on their hands was now over. It was time to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's begin in Jude's message here. Well, Jude's letter, it's like other letters that we find in the New Testament. There's an opening, there's a body of the letter, And then there's a closing. But this letter was not addressed to any specific church. Instead, it was addressed to God's people as a whole. And this is an indicator that lawlessness, this threat within the church, was a widespread problem. In fact, uh, Peter's uh, second epistle, it dealt with the same problems. Both he and Jude, in fact, used a lot of parallel language. So much so that people have debated who wrote their letter first? Peter or Jude? And like Jude, Second Peter was not addressed to any one church either. So this means we can draw the conclusion that this problem in the church was a major threat. It was prevalent. And so Jude, he begins his message by identifying himself in a significant way. He said, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, I'd ask you to think about this for a moment. Jude said he is the brother of James. This is the same James who presided over the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. The same James who wrote the book of James. And James, he was certainly well known in the church, and no other James could be referred to without any qualification. And even though there were other people named James in the New Testament, the church did not have to ask which James he was referring to, this is, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And since James was the half-brother of Jesus, Jude is also the half-brother of Jesus. In fact, Jude is listed as one of the brothers in the Gospels. And so Jude, he was likely also one of the youngest of the brothers, because he was listed last in the Gospels, which usually means you're the youngest. But what does that tell us about Jude? It tells us that Jude is among those brothers who had an important role, an important ministry in the church. And Paul alluded to the brothers of Jesus as having a prominent ministry in 1 Corinthians 9, where we see that they're not apostles, but they were certainly leaders within the church. So this is why the brother of James had the authority to send out this letter And the church readily received it. In fact, Jude, he was quoted multiple times by the early church fathers. And it shows us that Jude was really held in high esteem. And since Jude was the brother of James, and the half-brother of Jesus, here it is, why didn't he claim his brotherhood to Jesus? Either to identify himself, or to authenticate his message. Why did he do that? In fact, Jude, he simply referred to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave. Why do you think he would do that? Well, I would submit to you that this is a wonderful declaration of faith by Jude. For example, if you think about it this way, families, we all live together, brothers and sisters, we all know when our brothers and sisters got in trouble. I knew when my brothers and sisters got in trouble, they knew when I got into trouble. There's no doubt that people know their families. Well, if you think about it, Jude, he grew up in Jesus' household. And if Jesus had any sin in his life, Jude would have seen it, along with the rest of Jesus' brothers. But you'll find it in verse 4, notice that Jude doesn't call out Jesus as a fraud. Instead, he calls Jesus his master and his Lord. Lord being that word kurios in the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Yahweh. And you remember Yahweh is that name of God in the Old Testament that the Israelites regarded as too sacred to even be spoken. You see, Jude wasn't afraid to say that Jesus was his master and his God. He was saying, my Yahweh, my Kurios. So Jude's testimony, his testimony of faith in Jesus, it beams here. And you can't miss that in this epistle. You can't overlook it. Well, after stating who he was in Christ, Jude reminded God's people who they were in Jesus and how they attained that position. Let's continue in verse 1. He says this, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Notice that he opens by addressing them as those who are called. And if you remember the word, that the word call, called Is used in really two different ways in scripture uh, The outward call that goes out to everyone And then that inward call that's only given to the elect Well Jude, he's using the word in the elect sense of the, of the term And we know this because he further describes them As being sanctified, being preserved, being kept Past tense Meaning it's already done It's only those who were called inwardly that are sanctified and preserved by the Father. And it can only be said that the elect of God, that mercy, peace, and love, are multiplied to you. And so what Jude is doing here is reminding them of who they are before he gets into the core issues of his letter. They've been given a position of incredible honor, and he wants them to know this before he tells them about the threat that needs to be confronted. And so, if you think about it this way, in, in your own mind, how many great leaders of the past and they delivered the most powerful motivational speeches? A couple of them that I thought of uh, were depicted in movies like uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or Winston Churchill's uh, We Will Fight for the Beaches. Uh, you think, go back and you think about those great speeches, the common element in all those speeches is they reminded the people of who they were and what it took to get them to that point. And so, this is what Jude is doing here. He is saying, you are loved and have been loved before the foundation of the world. You've been sanctified, you've been called, you've been kept for Jesus Christ. There isn't any greater strength than knowing that you are secure in Jesus Christ from here and into eternity. And it is because of the eternal glory of Jesus Christ that love, mercy, and peace are multiplied to His people. That's what Jude is saying to them. Well, after reminding them of who they are in Jesus Christ, Jesus continued and he said he was compelled to write. Look at verse 3. He said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we see that Jude, he really wanted to talk about their common salvation, the eternal truths of the faith, their their common love for God, who they were in Jesus Christ. I'm sure he would have wanted to expound on what he just told them about being called, being sanctified, being preserved. But he found it necessary and imperative to address them, to contend for the faith. Well, what does he mean by the faith that was once for all delivered? to the saints. Well, first Jude is not talking about their subjective personal faith or trust. What he's talking about is a body of truth that was established going back to Genesis, affirmed by Jesus Christ and handed down to the apostles. And this isn't the first time that the body of this body of truth was under attack. In fact, Jesus, he had to affirm the authority of the Old Testament over and over again calling out the Jewish leaders for their lack of submission to that body of truth and their failure to recognize Jesus as the Word made flesh. The beginning and foundation of all knowledge, of all truth was standing right in front of them and they didn't recognize it. They rejected Jesus so Jesus took that body of truth and he handed it down to the apostles. He entrusted them with The faith. And in fact, we see this in there's two chapters, John 14 and John 16. And we'll bring this out a little bit more. In John 14, Jesus promised that the Father, He would send them the Holy Spirit who will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. So by implication, the Holy Spirit would oversee the production of the gospel. Two chapters later in John 16, Jesus said this. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. So what we see in this passage, we find that the Apostles they did not understand the full significance of Christ's death. So Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit. And so by implication, the Holy Spirit would oversee the production of the New Testament epistles, which explain the significance of the work of Christ. This is that body of truth that was entrusted to the apostles, who are the foundation of the church. And it is the church that was appointed to be a depository a guardian and a witness of that body of truth. And she can only be true to her calling if ministers and members hold fast and contend earnestly for the faith. That faith has been once and for all delivered, meaning it cannot be changed. You cannot add to it, and you cannot take away from it. And people within the church, they were trying to reinterpret that body of truth. Well, this isn't any different than today. What is just and good is regularly being reinterpreted. In fact, in our own country, there's an ongoing battle uh, when judges are appointed, especially Supreme Court justices. Uh, The war is between two types of judges, originalists and living constitutionalists. If you think about originalists, they interpret the Constitution as a body of truth where the text is the text and has the original meaning at the time of the people ratified it. The meaning does not change over time and it's not up to the judge to update it or to infuse their ideas into it. On the other hand, you've got living constitutionalists who interpret the Constitution as a living document where it evolves, changes over time and adapts to new circumstances without being formally amended. Uh, to them, it doesn't matter what the Constitution meant by their words. It only matters how they interpret it now. Well, we have the same war going on in the church today regarding the Bible. Since the Bible says that all scripture is breathed out, and that it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, there are those that draw the conclusion that the Bible changes its meaning over time. For example, in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, many of them believe that the Holy Spirit can give them a new revelation that changes the meaning of the Bible. It doesn't matter what the apostles originally meant by the text. After all, that's the dead letter. It only matters what they think the Holy Spirit is telling them now. Another example is we also have liberals in the church uh, who believe that the Bible is filled with errors. Therefore, only Jesus' words that truly matter. Nothing else does. All other words can be disregarded. Uh, We also have those in the church who believe we no longer live under a moral law. I don't want to hear about the Ten Commandments. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. How many times have you heard that? They misrepresent the relationship between the law and the gospel. And this is how we get homosexual ministers in the church. And members who think homosexuality and transgenderism is somehow okay. They ignore the explicit words of the apostles and God's moral law. So what Jude is saying right at the outset of his letter is, The faith, that body of truth, has already been settled, delivered, and it cannot be amended. The apostles and the prophets have spoken, and their meanings are timeless. They're inspired, and they are fixed. And the meaning of their words, they do not change over time. You cannot infuse your own ideas into the meaning of the Bible. In essence, Jude was a Bible originalist. And he reminds the church that they must be as well. They must contend earnestly for that faith in fact the word earnestly you think about that word it's an adverb that means with sincere intense conviction Judas saying with sincerity and conviction contend that is fight for the faith in fact the kind of a historical context when he's saying this in the greco-roman world uh, education was focused on the whole person and, and athletics were a demonstration of achievement. And religious devotion to the Greco-Roman gods, not just entertainment. And this is why the Greco-Roman gymnasium, it included rhetoric, grammar, music, all those things, not just physical competition. And athletic festivals, they were always dedicated to the gods. And and were always seen as a form of worship. And since sports were a form of worship, they had to leave everything out on the field, so to speak and victorious athletes would understand that they were pleasing the gods by their victories so the church in Jude's time they would have definitely understood this phrase earnestly contend because it was a Greco-Roman cultural norm and what Jude was implying in his message is this with your whole being with sincerity and with conviction fight for the faith with body and soul With your mind, your affections, your will. Leave it all out on the field. With everything that you have, you need to contend. That's what he's driving home here. You cannot sit on the sidelines and be a spectator. It's time to enter the arena. And so why do God's people need to fight so earnestly? Well, he tells us in verse 4. Look at what he says. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, there was lawlessness being practiced in the church. There were were those who perverted the grace of God by believing they could live in sensuality, that is, in sexual sin, and there was nothing wrong with it. They weren't even ashamed of it. And, And Jude... He's not talking about Christians who sin and repent here. People who feel the weight of their sin, they repent, they're fighting those things in their lives. No, he's talking about people who sin while teaching and encouraging others to do the same. And they have zero intention of repenting. In fact, we know that sex cults were big in those days. uh, When they would meet to indulge in their pleasures and this was an act of worship to a particular Roman deity. And these sexual acts of worship took place in Roman temples. This is, the sensual, this is the sensuality that Jude was likely referring to because it was so prominent at that time. And by doing these, the, these things, these acts of sensuality, which were also acts of worship, they were denying Jesus as their master and their Lord. They were choosing to gain their pleasure from a false god, not trusting in the one true God who told them what was good, who told them what was pleasurable. And so imagine if you think about their perspective, a master, or a ruler, he, he governs by law, he governs by standards of behavior. They are placed on their subordinates, one of the basic things we understand about life. But these church members were denying that they were ruled by Jesus Christ at all, that he did not demand any standards of behavior. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. That famous phrase we've seen throughout the scriptures of how human beings rebel. But according to Jude here, these people, these lawlessness, these lawless people, they crept into the church unnoticed. In fact, the word crept, it, it implies something sinister, meaning they entered the church with evil intentions. For example, a burglar, he creeps in through a window because he thinks he can get in and out without being noticed. No one wants to discover his crime. It's kind of the the kind of element we see. There's a criminal element to this word, correct. Well, these church members who crept in were also, they were unnoticed. And they were unnoticed because they hid their lawlessness behind the confession of faith from others in the church. In fact, Jude boldly stated that these lawless people were long ago designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So what Jude is saying is their condemnation is coming. And their crimes will not go unpunished. God will not be mocked. Their evil will run for an appointed time, appointed by God for a good and final purpose. But it will come. If I put yourself in the shoes of the church members, who are listening to this epistle for the first time, it's read. I often try to think about it this way, just to kind of get my head in what people may be thinking. You think about Jude, he's speaking to the believers in the church, but those also who crept in were sitting among them as well. And as this letter was being read, what do you think their response was? Uh, Did they lash out in anger? I mean, did they do it against the church? Did they flee? I mean, Jude was making it very clear that the lawless within the church, they were condemned. I mean, did fear feel their hearts? I don't know. Did they tremble? We don't know what their responses were because Jude doesn't tell us. But sadly, these people were predestined to this end. So that God may demonstrate his wrath and make his power known. Lawlessness will not be tolerated in the Lord's church. In fact, you could sense the seriousness of Jude in his language here. This isn't a small matter. The Lord will bring His justice. The Lord will defend his church. Well, how are we to respond to Jude's message? Uh, There are two things that I I would ask you to consider. First, the Holy Spirit teaches you uh, that you are not called to lawlessness, but to law-abiding citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Every true Christian will take this seriously. I mean, we remember Jesus' words. He said, "If you love me, keep my commandments." The difference between you and the legalist is that you're not trying to justify yourself before God by keeping the law. You are an unprofitable servant. You're doing what your duty, what your duty is. that's it. And your motivation for lawful living is driven by thankfulness for what Jesus has already accomplished for you on the cross. And you are already beloved, you are already sanctified, you are already preserved in Jesus Christ. That is your motivation, to contend for the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. You are already one of those saints. The second point I would draw to your attention is this. Contending for the faith is not an easy task. There will be victories and there will be defeats in the lives we encounter. In fact, it can be extremely heart-wrenching. Why? Because the people that Jude are talking about are those who, lawless, those who choose lawlessness over Christ, are those who worship among us. They're amongst God's people. They're amongst the church family. They're our sons. There are daughters. There are fathers, mothers, and friends that you've shared the ups and downs of life with. You love them. But you also know that if you confront one of these dear friends, they may walk away from the church. That fear is certainly there. And we even know that even in that fear, we know and understand the Apostle John's words when he says in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But even so, when you hear those words, it's hard to see someone walk away from the church family. Why? Because it certainly felt like they were one of us. It hurts. It's painful to see loved ones walk away. But in that pain, you know you have to do what is right before the Lord, no matter what the outcome may be. With gentleness and respect, you must engage in confrontation. You must. You must earnestly contend for the faith by defending the faith. And you defend the faith amongst our fathers, our mothers, our sons, our daughters, our brothers and sisters by regularly reminding them that the faith is an indestructible worldview. It's your indestructible fortress of protection as you engage in this present evil world and it will not fail you. Why? Because the Father gave it to you through Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit. That's who gave it to you and has been handed down to you to live within this fortress to defend it. Satan, the world, our own flesh, they deceive us into thinking that there is a freedom and a joy in a, in a worldview of lawlessness. But ultimately that worldview, that, that false faith, that false protection, always comes crashing down on itself at some point. We must plead with our fleeing family members. To stay within the walls of protection. Don't flee from your Creator who made you to have life and have it abundantly in Jesus Christ. It is among us and within these walls that you are truly loved. With our pleas and our our prayers, God will preserve many and they will stay and live among His people. But even if someone walks away, we still have hope. Because that person who walked away, the one you love, when they are crushed under the weight of this unforgiving world. If the Lord has chosen to save them, He will dig them out from under that rubble. He will dig them out and He will give them life. And He will draw them back to the faith and back to you. In fact, in Luke 15.10, I love these words. It says, There is a joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You think about those words you will get to rejoice like the angels by seeing that person return home while embracing them with all the love that they walked away from. That's a wonderful thought. And I'll close with this. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it's time to earnestly contend for the faith. And we live inside her, as we live inside her indestructible walls. And and we fight with this certainty that on that great day when our Lord returns, all corruption will be rooted out of this world and in you. You will no longer have to earnestly contend against lawlessness or the pain and the sorrow that comes with it. Instead, with your heart filled with love and adoration, you will be earnestly embracing your Savior for all eternity, who established and gave you that body of truth. Rest in that hope as you defend the faith that has been entrusted to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for changing us, for granting us the gift of faith, to believe in the faith, that body of truth that you've handed down, for us to trust in you and the word you've given. Knowing that you strengthen us and keep us, please grant us boldness and strength along with gentleness and respect, as we fulfill this task that Jude sets before us. We pray these things and we ask that you bless the rest of this worship service in honor of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.